One, two, three. The following is a Laura Flanders Show audio exclusive. The science is clear. As the IPCC, a UN agency with climatologists from over 70 countries, reported again this year, the Earth's temperature is rising. And with each increased increment, change is speeding up. Climate change is already affecting humans, animals, birds, insects, and plants. As the directors of Greenpeace told this program last year, we simply cannot afford any new fossil fuel development, period. And yet, while the Biden administration claims to be dedicated to being a global leader in climate action, it is simultaneously greatly increasing oil and gas exports across the planet. And in just the past few weeks, the administration has allowed the controversial Willow oil drilling project in Alaska to go forward and given the green light to the auctioning of an area roughly the size of Arizona in the Gulf of Mexico to offshore oil and gas drilling. It is one heck of a time to be taking over the leadership of one of the oldest and biggest environmental organizations in this country. But that's just what our guest today is doing. He comes to the Sierra Club not only as it's facing all that I've just mentioned, but it's also reckoning with the racism of its founder back in 1892 and its own history of, let's just say, not to put too fine a point on it, whiteness. Ben Jealous was the national president of the NAACP from 2008 to 2013, its youngest leader at that time. During that time, he brought Republicans and Democrats together to do things like shrink prison populations and work for criminal justice reform. He ran for governor of Maryland in 2018, the first African-American to do that, and he is just out with a book that is packed with stories about unlikely alliances and surprising histories, his own and the country's. The book's title is Never Forget, Our People Were Always Free. The man is Ben Jealous, and I am very glad to welcome him to the Laura Flanders Show as my guest. Hi, Ben. How are you? It's always good to be with you, Laura. Thank you for having me. Now, a lesser person might feel somewhat daunted um, to be taking over a major environmental organization at this moment. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm excited. This organization, the Sierra Club, one of the two main organizations of my childhood, the NAACP being the the other, uh, is everywhere. And that means that we're always in the right place at the right time to do the right thing. It's exciting to be taking over the leadership of an activist army that's so huge. We often start these conversations by asking our guests, I ask people, um, you know, what is forefront of your mind and in your heart as, as we start this this uh, this conversation. So, so what's what's that for you today, right now, as we sit here? Yeah. We are at a moment, call it our anti-NAFTA moment, when we can actually envision, because we have the technology, we have the demand, we have the money to build an economy that brings back manufacturing, that creates millions of jobs here, that delivers vehicles at a lower and lower cost as demand meets supply, that costs a fraction of what the gas automobile in most folks' driveway costs to power and maintain. And that greener future is, is frankly the economy that lifts all boats again, that a lot of us have been fighting for for a long time. 
Now, the obstruction, what gets in the way is every corporation that's invested in this status quo that's kept so many, not just people of color, so many white folks trapped in poverty or just a downward economic spiral for decades. That's the oil and gas industry. It's oftentimes your local power company. But that's what has me excited right now, is that doing the right thing by our environment is also doing the right thing by our nation. It's also doing the right thing by our families when it comes to building an economy that can truly lift all boats. No, you and I have been speaking about this opportunity for a long time. And there's a man in the White House who claims to understand that and put a bunch of money behind that in the so-called um, Anti-Inflation Act, Inflation Reduction Act. And yet the news this time as we're speaking has not been good over the last few weeks. The Willow Project in Alaska, this new auction in the Gulf of Mexico. How do you make sense of it? And is this just more evidence of we have yet to outfox the corporate power yet? I think it certainly is that. You know, the corporate talking points are quite seductive. They're also not true. This is not about energy independence. Energy independence is wind. Energy independence is solar. Energy independence is meeting the needs of the people in this country. And quite frankly, this is about exports. You know, this is about profiteering. This is about greed. And greed, frankly, of corporations that are addicted to destroying our planet. That's what this is about. I think, unfortunately, when President Biden makes bad decisions, it's because they're often rooted in an outmoded way of thinking, both about the climate and about politics. When he's right, he's right. When he's forward thinking, he's he's on the cutting edge, as he has been with the Inflation Reduction Act and the IA and the IIJA. But when he's wrong, it feels like he's trying to kind of rerun a game from the 1980s that the science doesn't back anymore. And frankly, the politics don't either. Well, on the political fronts, I think his defenders would say he's having to deal with a Joe Manchin in his administration who pushed this kind of these this auction, at least, through in that Inflation Reduction Act. And that takes me neatly to your history and your book and the sort of challenge that you're taking on right now to create some new alliances, including ones that you've been trying to make for years over your career, alliances with working class whites, like those who vote for Manchin. Um, Could they vote for somebody better? Probably. Uh, But how do we reach them? What do you bring to this work that you think um, is special, unique, and particularly apt for this moment? And why did you agree to do this job at this moment when you could have done a lot of stuff? You know, So my family moved to Northern California a few years before I was born in 1973. And what got them headed west was that my parents' marriage had been against the law in Maryland in 1966. Dad's white, mom's black. And back then, not only could you not get married across racial lines in Maryland, you weren't allowed to move into or return to the state if you had married across racial lines, cohabitating across racial lines as man and wife was uh, barred explicitly by state law. And so I grew up in this world, kind of on this bridge between East and West, North and South, Black and White. And the two organizations that really defined my childhood were the Sierra Club, principally in Northern California, and then the NAACP, principally in the summers I spent in West Baltimore. 
And so for me at 50, this was really coming full circle, but frankly coming full circle at a particular time uh, for our planet, for our people, for our nation. Again, we are at a moment when we can build a bigger, better, more prosperous future for all of our families. It requires us to have courage and shifting from a dependence on oil and gas towards electrifying everything. And what that means is that in places like Baltimore, we can reopen steel plants and frankly reopen steel plants that are much cleaner than the ones that we shut down decades ago. And we can dream again of bringing back manufacturing. And even though that manufacturing might not be as mighty as it was before because of AI, et cetera, it's still substantial. And it means lots of jobs for people who uh, don't have college degrees. And so for me at this moment, coming to the Sierra Club is really not just coming full circle in my own life, but the two great passions of my life, civil rights and the environment, frankly, justice for working people and the environment all coming together. Lord, the last time I was out on the stump for an environmentalist organization, I was 20 years old and I was the Student Environmental Action Coalition's national speaker against NAFTA, touring the country. Back then we sounded like Chicken Little. The hard part is that we were right. 63,000 American factories were shut down. Our pollution was exported to places that don't regulate. We thought it would be Mexico. It turned out to be China. So much worse in so many ways, both for geopolitics and for the environment. Well, this time, I'm excited that it's like I said, it's kind of this anti-NAFTA moment. It's this moment when we can build the green economy of the future and really provide not just relief, but good jobs to families that have been yearning for them for a very long time. Can we do that without retreating into total nationalist protectionism? Absolutely. It's just common sense around our carbon footprint that we shouldn't be making everything in China and shipping it uh, across the Pacific on a barge. It's 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 kind of ridiculous. You know, we can, uh, you know, build stuff here. And I don't think you have to be a protectionist to take pride in the fact that our country used to make stuff mm-hmm. and that there's, you know, and that there's a lot of families who are a bit lost in our economy unless there's a factory to report to. I mean, it's just frankly pragmatism that we should make stuff in this country and that a lot of communities would be better off if we did. Those 64,000 factories, that's roughly one for every town and city in our country. I mean, the people uh, at Greenpeace would push back at the idea that you can have any kind of clean coal plants at this point. Oh, I didn't we say did. a coal plant, I said a steel plant. And, and the science is there that we can manufacture steel in ways that are not as disastrously uh, polluting as the factories were in the 1950s and 60s. Oh, right. it's, it's also kind of common sense. Let's talk about the changes. I mean, in your book, you describe, I think you were at the time working for Amnesty International and you're trying to organize a group of folks about... Um, the death penalty. And you describe realizing, oh, we might find some liberal whites at a uh, Earth Day meeting. Um, And at that time, the folks that you expected to show up for those meetings, those Earth Day gatherings, you describe them as looking exactly like, you know, run of the mill Republicans on an average day, but suddenly showing up in, I don't know, tie dye on Earth Day. Yeah, Um, it's true. I mean, Earth Day in the Deep South is Groundhog Day for white liberals. It's just a fact. Like, you know, most days, if you're going to wander around in your Birkenstocks and your and your Grateful Dead shirt in Jackson, Mississippi, you're liable to be ostracized. But if you show up, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, 
Mississippi State University, Ole Miss, Delta State, uh, on Earth Day back in the 90s, it was like a reunion for every white <laughs> liberal on the state. Has things, have things changed? How would you describe how things have changed as we mark another Earth Day? You know, I, what I would say is this, um, protecting the environment through our young people is returning to be a bipartisan issue. If you look beyond the, 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 the real backwards leaders who define the Republican moment, who are virtually all you know, old men with gray hair, and you go listen to the young people who identify as Republicans, they know what's what. They wanna make sure that they can look forward to a future where they can raise great grandchildren who can look forward to raising great grandchildren. And they understand what the science says much more so than the grownups do. I mean, that's the hope for us to build a bipartisan issue when it comes to the environment is to communicate directly with young people. There's also a lot of folks who used to be called Republicans who now feel a bit lost because they're not down with Donald Trump and his, and his crazy uh, opportunistic racist type of politics um, who, who also recognize the science. And, and so what I've said to folks in the Sierra Club is we've got to be bigger than the Democratic Party to our left and to our right. Anytime an issue is a one party issue, you might as well just declare def defeat. But the, the reality is, is that when you look at the polling, the support for what we're seeking to do, shutting down those coal-fired power plants, electrifying everything, delivering more F-150s that are as fast as a Ferrari and use one-fifth of the gas, sorry, one cost one-fifth to power as your old gas F-150. You're, you know, an old gas F-150 is like 14 miles in a gallon, a new electric is the equivalent of 70. You don't have to be a, a Democrat to sign up for that. In fact, there's a lot of young Republicans who agree. And, and so what I've said to our folks is that everybody who's currently in our tent, from the left to the left to the kind of the grumpiest person on the center right, or maybe even a little bit beyond, we need all of them. And we need more of them because we're the world's leading polluter. And the mandate to fix that uh, is something that, quite frankly, um, doesn't really know any party. I mean, that's just a moral, scientific mandate of this moment. And anybody who's down for that, we need in the Sierra Club right now because we've got to, you know, frankly, we've got to deliver super majorities in the Senate. You talked about how Joe Manchin, and Joe Manchin, the real problem there is his addiction to corporate largesse for his brand of politics. And so in the past, when I've built bipartisan coalitions, it hasn't been with the moderates. It's been with the activists of both parties because, the, because the, the activists are actually people who, when they're with you, they're with you. Even if they're against you 95% of the time, uh, they're driven by, by ideas, you know, they're, they're intellectually more honest about what they believe and less flexible. And that's what, what we figured out on criminal justice reform was that we could reach out to the libertarians and the fiscal conservatives and the, you know, and the Christian conservatives and all of them agreed with us about the need to shrink prisons. And so, yeah, I'm on the hunt now for the Republicans who agree with us on the need to actually drive down emissions and switch to a better future 
frankly, where we're making more stuff here, we're employing more people in our country, and we're building the technologies that all of us want that pollute less uh, and that ultimately keep more money in our pockets and send you know, less money uh, to the profits of the type of people who run oil companies. Your book is full of histories of unusual alliances, and, and I want you to talk about some of those. Um, but as we talk about crafting, as you talk about crafting that electoral majority um, and the work that you did at the NAACP, I think about Governor Kemp, <laughs> um, with whom you worked on that project and his role since. Oh, no, 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 no. I worked with Jack Kemp. I worked with Secretary Kemp. Oh, Congress I have my Kemp. notes wrong. My mistake. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. So, and we also I, worked with uh, Governor Kemp's predecessor, Nathan Deal. But no, never messed okay. with Governor Kemp. No. So I, I think <laughs> about some of the complexities of, of some of this. Um, yeah. For example, we have challenges right now that will require people actually to change, to give up some power, give up some places, give up some ways of life. Um, it's not going to be easy. Is there a danger when we say we could all get on board with this? There's something for us all to gain if we don't also grapple with, you know, some of the real changes that some people are going to have to make. We're all going to have to grapple with it. And we, um, at the NAACP, when Julian Bond and I decided that we would have to ensure that the NAACP as a civil rights institution was fully on board to support marriage equality for the gay community, we commenced three years of internal conversations before we weighed in on the issue. And when we weighed in, public opinion shot up more than it did when President Obama endorsed marriage equality for the gay community in part because we had been working with activists in hundreds of communities for years. And so when we all came online, if anybody had a question at any church, one of our folks, it was a black church, was there to explain it. Not even President Obama had that kind of reach when he weighed in on an issue. Mm. Sierra Club, you know, there's a similar series of conversations we're going to have to, they've already started to have internally about, okay, we need 50 million tons more copper to rewire the grid in, in the US, where is that gonna come from? How is that gonna be mined? Who's gonna profit from it? Are we gonna profit workers in this country? Are we gonna profit dictators in countries where they have no environmental regulations typically? And if they do, they don't enforce them. And they use those funds to persecute environmental activists in those countries. Those are real conversations that we're going to have to have. Now, there's some things we will never waver on. We will never waver on shutting down coal-fired power plants. You know, we will never waver on, uh, frankly, fighting big oil and big gas at every turn because they obstruct our nation from, that, from a better future and they promise to destroy humanity, quite frankly. The planet will survive, but people won't if things keep going the direction that they're going. So we will fight them fiercely. At the same time, we have gotten very used to saying no to everything. And the reality is we don't just show up with carrots. So we don't just show up with sticks anymore. We show up with carrots. Mm -hmm. We worked hard to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. We worked hard to pass the, the infrastructure bill. And then there's more than a trillion dollars for fast tracking, for supersizing green industries in this country. 
And yes, that means that we're going to have to have conversation about where do the factories go and, and you know, where do we get the necessary minerals from? Uh, and where do we put the solar panels? And where do we put the wind farms? And where does that transmission line run? And those are all, all conversations that are already happening inside the Sierra Club and that we're preparing to have uh, even more robust conversation about in earnest, because we're the ones who have been fighting to deliver this green future for decades, really for more than a century. And, uh, and now there's a responsibility to help ensure that the nation gets it right and frankly delivers that cleaner, greener future just as fast as the planet needs us to, which is like yesterday. And, and racial justice, are there things that you have in your sights, ways that the Sierra, you're hoping the Sierra Club will change in order to be able to deliver that more effectively? Yes, you know, the, in my book, Never Forget Our People Are Always Free. One of the things that I talk about is that Dr. King, when he was assassinated 55 years ago, April 4th, 55 years ago, his final lesson he was trying to teach us was that in addition to being the boot on people of color's neck, racism is also the old wedge from an old colonial system of divide and conquer. And that everybody who gets divided by that wedge is hurt because their political power is diminished. And so in the environmentalist movement, we have to recognize that black people and brown people have always been the ones most likely to support environmental protections. And yet, oddly excluded from the leadership of the green movement and, and unfortunately not always feeling invited into green organizations. The nice thing about the Sierra Club is that it's done that work and that from day one when I showed up, what I found was the most integrated, inclusive, green, you know, national green group in the entire country. I've toured more than a quarter of the chapters and you see it on the ground. You know, black women leading chapters in places like Ohio, Washington State and Alabama. Um, you know, uh, Latino men leading in, in the Southwest and, and other places across the country. This organization has done hard work. It's profited from it by building a stronger mass movement organization. And I'm excited to expand that. And what's also clear, quite frankly, is that we also benefit from having older white men who are center, you know, centrist or even center right. Because again, we got to get big ideas through a US Senate that requires a super majority. And so we have assignments for the whole rainbow of supporters that we have and, and people from the left of the left, again, to people who are right of center, what we really care is that you agree about protecting our wild places uh, and ensuring that climate change stops and that we, you know, frankly, shift from a dependence on oil and gas to using renewables to power fire, to, to, excuse me, that we shift, shift from oil and gas to using renewables to power a new kind of grid in which everything is electrified and needless emissions have been stopped. Have any of those people come around? I know there were a few that 
got frustrated in the discussion around the history of the founding of the era club and said, we're sacrificing our focus on the planet or the na on nature for um, political correctness or something. You know, I'd say reckonings are always difficult. They're necessary. They're difficult. Reckonings during COVID, even tougher, you know, even tougher. Uh, as I pulled people together in person traveling across the country, I'd say everybody's ready to move forward. And honestly, as a former NAACP president who in researching his book had to wrestle with the fact that Robert E. Lee is my cousin, the reality is that, you know, we're all kind of more connected to these 19th century white guys uh, than we'd like to admit. And in the panoply of American leaders in the 19th century, John Muir was among the best. Yeah, he talked like a 19th century white guy. That's clear. He was also, when he was writing his, his uh, thousand mile walk to the Gulf, for instance, he was carrying the papers, the anti-slavery papers of Thoreau in his pocket. He was wrestling with and would ultimately evolve himself. He started off saying some things about Black folks and Native Americans that weren't so good. He ended up towards the end of his life in a much better place celebrated by some Native American tribes who deeply appreciated his efforts to preserve places that were sacred to them, places that we are now in, in uh, many sites fighting to have returned to those Native American tribes for their control and their stewardship. And so, you know, we are evolving, John Muir evolved. We all have to reckon uh, with, quite frankly, not nice things said in the 19th century. And frankly, when we do, we all evolve that much faster. You dig up some extraordinary history. Um, one story I didn't know at all, which was the story of one of your ancestors, Edward David Bland. Um, can you talk about him and, and what he did and with whom? It's kind of amazing. <laughs> you know, well, I was racing to write this book because my grandmother was 103. She would pass at 105. And I was trying to get the manuscript in her hands before she died as I did, but she was too weak to read it. So I started to read it to her. And I was trying to unravel these mysteries that she left us with. And one of them was, why was she more on fire to end poverty than she was to even end racism? And she had been a soldier in the war against both. But man, he started talking to my grandma about poverty in West Baltimore. She wouldn't finish until she had talked about the poverty in the mountains of Western Maryland. Right. And what I ran into is that she was her grandfather's granddaughter just as much as I was her grandson. Her grandfather was a man named Edward David Bland. He had been born a slave in his uncle's house, his white uncle's house. Uh, we figured all of that. That's in the book, too. And then when he left at 17, by the time he was twice that age, he was a major political leader in Virginia. And he would ultimately, after the end of Reconstruction, when the Black community was most vulnerable, had been fighting the Klan for half a decade, and the public schools that they had created, that Black leaders had created during Reconstruction, got the state to fund public schools for everyone, were under threat from the old plantation oligarchs who were ascendant now that Reconstruction was over. He found his natural ally in saving those schools in a former Confederate general named William B. Mahone, who was 
ultimately written out of the histories of the Confederacy for being a race trader because he would join up with my grandmother's grandfather and together they would build a multiracial populist party, third party that took over the Virginia government. But at first had been disparaged for being a class trader because at the time, the other Confederate generals were founding groups like the Klans and the ones like General Mahone who owned railroads were putting down populist rebellions. But he reasoned that as a Southern railroad owner, he needed that populist support, something that frankly, Norfolk Southern today could learn from. And, and so rather than, than uh, suppressing his workers, he joined them and became the head of the third party that they fled the Democratic Party to join and their, their name came from their demand. Their demand was readjust the terms of the Civil War debt so we can keep our public schools. The oligarchs were saying, oh, we can't afford both. The Civil War debt terms are too onerous. So we're gonna have to shut down your public schools. Well, the oligarchs didn't really calculate just how many white families depended on those schools. And then my grandmother's grandfather, seeing this new party uh, cut whole cloth from the Democratic Party by white working class men who fled to save the free public schools for their families, he approached General Mahone. He said, well, you know, we started those schools. We want to save them as much as you. Why don't we join forces? And in the end, you had a majority black, multiracial, populist third party led by a former Confederate general and a freedman. They, like I said, they, they took over the governorship. They uh, took over control of both houses of the state, let, let state legislature, and with that, both U.S. senators. For about four and a half, five years, they seemed to control everything in Virginia. And, and in that time, Laura, not only did they save the free public schools, they radically expanded Virginia Tech, making it what we know it to be today, the working person's answer to the more patrician University of Virginia. They created what became Virginia State, the first publicly funded college for black teachers south of the Mason-Dixon, quickly quadrupling the number of black teachers teaching in the public schools. They abolished the public whipping post and they abolished the poll tax. And what's interesting, Laura, is, you know, I think you and I, first of all, we're probably never taught. There was a time like Johnny Rabb and the Freedmen got together and took over multiple state governments. No. But that's indeed what happened. What we also were were probably taught was that the um, that the poll tax was an attack on black power of the reconstruction era but what's interesting is that poll tax when it was implemented put back in place in virginia after the readjuster party had their heyday didn't just disenfranchise 80 percent of blacks it also disenfranchised 50 percent of whites in other words it disenfranchised everybody who had been part of that populist multiracial takeover of the Virginia government that had happened much more recently than the Civil War and Reconstruction. And, and that kind of blew my mind. I think if we had been taught that, yeah. if we had been taught that less than 20 years after the Civil War, Johnny Reb, just the line soldier of the old Confederacy, not the generals, had teamed up with men who'd been born slaves and taken over state governments in order to preserve free public education on a platform that was pro-civil rights, pro-workers' rights, pro-voting rights, and that poll the poll tax had been put in place, excuse me, that the poll tax had been put in place to, to ensure 
that those men would never vote again, white or black. That narrative, I think, would have led to a very different politic in our country over the last 120 years or so. And and that's the politic that I'm interested yeah. in, in building. You can... People can read much more about it in your book, which is just fascinating. And, and the other thing that I think not being told that history teaches us is a very false sense of how history moves. Yes. Because as you tell the story, and we just came back from Wilmington last year and did a whole piece about a very similar phenomenon in, William, in Wilmington. Yep. You see how history makes progress, then it goes back, makes progress, then it goes back. You have, you know, advancement, retrenchment. It's the name of the game. Um which brings me to the situation we're in today. You, you mentioned Norfolk Southern, and, and um, I have to reflect on the attention that has gone to that horrendous disaster in East Palestine, Ohio, yes. because I've heard from people in Black communities that are buried in toxins on a regular basis that they feel sympathy for the victims, of course, but a kind of frustration with the imbalance in the attention, um, with the head of the company coming down say we'll make it good the secretary of education the of transportation saying this is top priority obviously you sympathize what do you do oh i think that you use this as precedent for everything going forward and you use the moment to leverage as much relief as you can for the communities that have been impacted by norfolk southern and by chemical trains in the south uh period i mean the um uh excuse me chemical trains period in the South, in Mobile, Alabama, Africatown is, is a part of Mobile that has been just destroyed uh, by the oil and gas industry. Everything from refineries and, you know, looking more broadly at petrochemicals, biochemical, de- you know, biochemical train derailment, too. And, and I, I was down there recently, and I know it stings a little bit for folks to see so much attention in the same breath, folks will tell you that it also gives them hope uh, because this is an important precedent for how we deal with this. And quite frankly, uh, how the folks in Africa town were treated was based on precedents be- before that for just uh, kind of giving everybody like a, a hundred bucks, you know, and, you know, telling them, you know, and getting them to sign away uh, any, any claims that they might have. And so I'm optimistic that no chemical train derailment will ever be treated the same as it was uh, because of East Palestine. A similar thing happened, and I discuss it in the book when it came to opiates. You know, we, uh, we acted like opiate addiction was a, was a criminal nuisance that was, could only be treated with prison. Frankly, until in the Midwest and in the Mid-South, white sheriffs began just publishing the photos of everybody who was dying from the overdoses because there was such increases in multiple waves. First it was black tar heroin coming up from Mexico. Then it was all the pills. Now it's fentanyl. And they were burying classmates of theirs and the politics weren't shifting. And so they just published the photos. And when people saw, quite frankly, in these white cities and these white counties, as segregated as our country is these days, images of white people dying, it went from this is a criminal scourge to this is a health emergency. It went from we need to treat it with prison to we need to treat it with rehab. It's kind of a similar thing happening with East Palestine. And it, it always hurts when that's the reason yeah. that things shift. Uh, but once they shift, everybody tends to benefit. 
You have talked in this conversation already about the the personal connection and your own personal history. And I think about how personally we need to take the emergency that we're in climate wise. It sometimes feels sort of outside of ourselves. Um, But one of the projects of the Sierra Club, one of them has been to reconnect people with nature and wilderness and, and a sense of what it's like to, to be yeah. in that in that environment. Um, and at the same time, you have push from environmental justice leaders who say, you know, the environment isn't someplace else. It's also right here. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it comes back to we have to love this place <laughs> um, mm-hmm. enough to do something as we change the anti-miscegenation laws, as we got gay marriage, marriage equality, as you mentioned, um, as we fought for civil rights more broadly, there's often kind of love at the root, um, not to Mm -hmm. paraphrase Che Guevara. But in terms of this question of nature, how do you think about it? And what are you going to be doing as you go forward to get out of this dichotomy of nature there or nature here kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, um, if you could see not just the inside of my house, but where it's located, I I live in a bird sanctuary uh, on the edge of the Chesapeake Bay. And my, part of what gives me hope is that my son sometimes sees bald eagles as a nuisance out here because a friend might come over with a small dog, for instance, and then they're worried this raptor's gonna come down and you know, have their poodle for lunch. Uh, and I had explained to my son, like what a privilege it is to be worried about that because when I was a kid with DDT, we were afraid all of our raptors were about to disappear. Not just the eagles, the osprey too. The osprey out here are like, are like seagulls, and that gives me hope for humanity. That it may be that you know that for my son, who long before he was the son of a guy running the Sierra Club, was just a black kid growing up in Maryland. Um, his biggest existential worry was whether he should hope to have children, because he worries that humanity's days are numbered just based on what he reads in the newspaper, just based on what he sees online. And so my my prayer as I take over the Sierra Club is that we can soon get our world to a place where our children's grandchildren will have no idea that their grandparents once feared human extinction the way that my son's grandparents and his dad once feared the extinction of the bald eagle. And cities? People who live in cities and say my environment matters too? Well, you know, the, the uh, one of the interesting things at the Sierra Club is we used to only do outings uh, into like the wild outdoors. And now we do toxic tours in many cities. And we're you know, really helping to build a broader consensus. One of the things that we have to do as a movement is to yes, talk about the local epicenter where there are cancer clusters and then quickly generalize to the way that big oil and big gas drive cancer in places like Houston, far beyond that epicenter. It's just in the air. We we visit a soccer field that's known to be a cancer cluster for children. And yet kids' teams play in that soccer field every weekend because of the amount of pollution coming from the nearby refineries. Uh, And so as an environmentalist group that uh, is known for getting people into the wild, our membership is hugely concentrated in the cities across this country. And when you look at the work that we do 
it mirrors that. And I'm, what I'm, one of the things I'm most proud of is that over the last decade, the Sierra Club has become increasingly a trusted ally of environmental justice communities across the country. Um, and that gives me hope. You know, almost 15 years ago, Laura, I launched the climate justice program of the NAACP in order to, to marry more closely together the traditional civil rights movement and the, and, you know, and the and environmental justice community I had been in conversation with since I was a young student getting kicked out for trying to stop my university for, from building a for-profit virus lab that the EPA said should not be in a densely populated area. And they, of course, wanted to put it on the site of Malcolm X's assassination in Washington Heights. Um, and, you know, and to the Mary, you know, that group of inner city environmental activists working on environmental justice issues with the civil rights community, and also to marry the civil rights community uh, with folks who are battling climate change. As I toured the 16 uh, chapters, the first, the quarter of the Sierra Club chapters that, that I first you know, engaged before taking over, every single one of them was working on the ground with local environmental justice communities and with climate justice committees of the NAACP. And that gives me great hope mm. that increasingly we aren't separate communities as much as we are groups of activists who may have a different principal focus, but at the end of the day are all willing to throw down for each other to make sure that, that each of our communities gets the justice it deserves and we all come together to save the planet that we all live on for even people far from here who are impacted by the massive amount of pollution coming out of our country. Is your mission still ending mass incarceration as you, as you wrote it me, down me? on that shed of paper years ago? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I never expected to get to 50. I'm kind of in a, in my second lifetime in a way, uh, my, Paternal grandfather, my white grandfather, died at 43 of his third heart attack. And when I stepped down at the NAACP, when I was 41, my blood pressure in the last six years before that had gone from the mid-120s to the mid-180s and showed no sign of slowing down. I figured out what was going to kill me, uh, and it's likely what killed my grandfather too. And ultimately, you know, I'm now in a place where I'm ready to take on a new challenge. Yeah. I'm proud to say that I've helped raise and train a whole generation of activists who are hell-bent on ending mass incarceration, and however I can help them, I will. Um, and yet, I am uh, totally focused on leading the Sierra Club to rise to this moment and really be the force that we need in this country, the big overwhelming force in the environmentalist movement uh, to hold our government accountable to its goals and make sure that we achieve them in time to ensure that this planet remains habitable for everybody. Lou Gossett Jr., my last NAACP Image Awards, pulled me aside and said, you know, Ben, I've been in this racial justice movement my entire life. I said, brother, it don't matter who's in first class on a dead planet. That stuck with me ever since. And I'm, you know, as Lou now is uh, not in good health. And I send prayers to him. He, um, 
you know, his voice stuck with me for a decade and I'm going to try to make sure that that, you know, do everything I can to help make sure that that doesn't happen. You say in your book, and we're coming close to the end here, is that there's a physics of politics. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you mean by that? And where do the physical forces stand as we speak? The last day of political science 101 at Columbia University, taught by Charles V. Hamilton, uh, co-author of Black Power. I asked him that question. And what he said is this, I don't know where the science is in politics, but it is a lot like physics. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction and something in motion will return to its original state. That, That first part, the kind of back and forth of politics is what dispirits a lot of us. But that last part, that something emotional will return to its you know, first state, its original state, it's what has given me hope for decades and still does. Because what he was talking about was that the American struggle, the struggle for equality in our country started with indentured servants and from Europe and enslaved people from Africa, and some say even some Native Americans joining forces to fight plantation oligarchs and horrible colonial governors together without regard for any crazy notions of race, uh, rather recognizing their common fraternity, their common sorority of humanity. And, and that that's, if that's where the struggle started, he reasoned, then that's what we're headed back to. And that's what I'm eager to get to. And that's what it's going to take, honestly, to uh, really assure the preservation of humanity on this planet. The reality is that uh, race, as Dr. King tried to teach us at the end of his life, is also a wedge used to divide us. And when we are divided, we all lose. And the battle to save the planet, like so many other battles, as you know, Laura, is a battle of organized people against organized money. And organized people can win every time, but we gotta be organized, we gotta come together, we gotta do that in bigger and bigger numbers. And that means that that old wedge, we gotta learn how to work across, across, how to reach across, how to not pay as much attention to in the moment that we all have to come together to win. You know, not let old biases or, you know, super, you know, or stereotypes uh, hold us back mm. from securing a better future for all our kids. If um, people want to know more about that um, anti-colonial rebellion period, um, the interviews that we've, I've had the honor of doing on this program with Peter Linebaugh, the author of Multi-Headed Hydra, about the Motley crew that I embrace as my own personal um, pack. Uh, well worth a look at and can be seen in our archives. Um, ben, to close, I always ask my guests, you know, what do they think is the story the future will tell of now? And you are an optimistic person and you've indicated the 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 the, the way that you think we may revert back to something better in the future um, that reflects maybe more of how we started. Um, but I'm curious about time because boy, the clock is ticking and clicking ticking loudly. And we don't have a lot of time if you listen to the IPCC or if you listen to frontline people um, across this planet. So I'm not going to ask you about a hundred years from now. I I feel like I need to know what you think the story will be that the future tells 
10 years from now? You know, this is the moment when we must all become optimists. There were times that maybe we had the privilege of time to argue a lot about, you know, the small bits of who makes you the rightest, you know, the most correct. My grandmother said to me a long time ago, it's true, pessimists are, are right more often, but optimists win more often. And you've got to decide in this life what's more important to you. And the reality is that if we're going to build an environmental movement that is big enough to actually win the day, we've got to show up to the American people with a vision that says we can build a better economy that lifts all boats. We have the technology. We have the resources. We have the demand. We have the will. We also have some foes, some obstacles we have to overcome. It's the oil and gas industry. It's oftentimes your local power company. But you know what? We band together. We can do that. And on the other side, yes, we will actually make, create a climate that's sustainable. We will save the future of this planet for humanity. But honestly, or most folks can't afford to think that far. And so it's also important to point out we will rebuild American manufacturing. We will bring back millions of jobs. Your family will profit more and it'll cost you less to get to work because frankly, the price of EVs will come down and they cost about a fifth as much to own and operate. Uh, you know, once you own them to maintain and to, and to power. That's the conversation that we need you know, to have with the American people. Yes, this is about stopping climate change. It's also about creating a better future for all of us. And you and I both know that most voters, they just don't have the luxury to worry about things 10 years in the future. They want to know how they're going to put more food on the table next month. And, and honestly, our movement offers solutions to both. All right. I think the Sierra Club made the right decision in bringing you on board to head the organization up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Ben. And thank you for your book, which is really a wonderful document. Thank you, Laura. It's always good to be with you.